Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and often now I see him on CNBC and Fox Business. He is, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists and analysts to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. More importantly, one of the top followers on, on Twitter for CIOs, CMOs, and of course, some thought-provoking advice. I'm also big on the Canadian Business Network uh, show. We see you there as well. And everywhere on TV these days too. So, But hey, it's not about us. It is more about our awesome guests this week. Who do we have to kick it off this week? What a pleasure and honor for us to have Amy Webb who's gonna be our first guest. Amy is a quantitative futurist. Amy is a professor of strategic foresight at NYU Stern School of Business and the founder of the Future Today Institute, a leading foresight and strategy firm that helps leaders and their organizations prepare for the complex future. Amy was named Thinkers 50 radar list of the 30 management thinkers most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led Amy's the author of three books. We're going to talk about her new book, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity, which is a call to arms about the broken nature of AI, artificial intelligence, and the powerful corporations that are turning the human-machine relationship on its head. We saw Amy on an amazing panel at Davos talk about this topic. The Wall Street Journal recently wrote about Amy's forecasting methodology, which is a must-read, and how understanding the future means carefully observing from unusual places the changing nature of the present. Fascinating read. She's an amazing must-follow on Twitter at A-M-Y-W-E-B-B. Welcome, Amy Webb, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. That was your shortened bio. You've done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but we only have 20 minutes. <laughs> that was the quick and dirty, quick and dirty. Hey, we're really excited to have you. And, you know, one of the big talks at Davos was this concept around AI. And I want to start with a question by asking, what's missing from all the talk about AI? Because you see it from all these different angles. But when you take it down to what it means from that futurist point of view, uh, what's that missing element? Or set right. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot that's missing, but I think the key thing to bear in mind is that we've been living with the idea of artificial intelligence for so long that what we've seen and learned from popular culture uh, has really obscured what's actually happening in the present. So a lot of people are looking out on the, on the horizon line um, for the day that the robots come and, and take over. And, you know, if you, exactly, if you talk to a lot of people, the robots are either going to be benevolent overlords <laughs> something like that, or they're going to murder us in our sleep. Um, and, and the, you know, the challenge of course, is that our frames of reference are, you know, Rosie from the Jetsons or Hal, uh, or more recently Westworld. And the reality is that, um, you know, artificial intelligence is not a singular technology. It's an umbrella term for many different technologies that have been in some form of development now, 
uh, for hundreds of years and in the modern era in a more concrete form for the past few decades. We live already with AI. So if you're somebody who's waiting for a singularity, for example, um, you're, you're going to miss all of the changes that currently surround us. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you're, you're going to lose your opportunity to have some say in the future that we're building. Absolutely. I just wrote a piece. I interviewed the CEO of Venture Scanner, and they tracked 2,800 startups that have fetched 60 billion in venture fund um, across 13 categories. So you're right. It's, it is not just a single technology; it's a broad category. And and you you uh, you know uh, advise Fortune 1,000 companies, startups. So when you're talking to these line of business leaders or just an ordinary citizen, what's at stake for humanity uh, when when we talk about AI? Right. So, you know, my job for a living is to take model or take data, model that data, look for emerging trends and uh, figure out, um, given what we know to be true today, what the plausible outcomes could be and what those downstream implications might be years from now. Um, you know, and the thing that I keep observing and have been observing for the past 10 years is that um, there, there's a lot of fundamental misunderstanding um, there's a lot of misplaced optimism and fear when it comes to AI. So the investment community is hot on AI and, and is throwing capital uh, at rates that I think should be a little alarming. Um, but, you know, there's a ton of money flooding into the system, um, you know, and there's also been quite a bit of consolidation. And so while it feels like um, there are a ton of startups, and there are, um, at some point, all of those startups sort of um, either use or uh, become aligned with one of the companies, um, I would argue that there are nine, who, who own um, you know, the infrastructure, who have the lion's share of patents, who are very well capitalized, uh, who have the best research partnerships with the best universities around the world, who attract the top talent, who are building custom silicon, whose frameworks it is that are, that are being built on. Um, you know, and so that, that should have us thinking about, you know, what, the, what this looks like in the future. And, and the, the big challenge is that uh, all of us have a stake in what's coming. And so we all should feel some sense of urgency, not because of killer robots, um, but rather because there are relatively, there's a relatively few number of people who are now working in a fairly rarefied space, mm. whose job it is to mine, refine, and optimize us and, and make systems that create decisions um, increasingly without our direct input. Wow. That, that yeah. is heavy. incredible. So, yeah. so we've got these acronyms that are popping up in your big nine and all of our G Mafia, Bat Fang, A Plus, all the new <laughs> IPOs that are coming yeah. for, uh, and, and, we're, and we're seeing this pick up, right? Uh, and and the war is actually happening at the corporate level. The mm -hmm. war is also happening at the country level. And let's talk a little bit about the country level here. Yeah, so I would argue that there are nine companies that matter most when you're talking about the future of AI. Um, so in China, they're called the BAT. Um, it's Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Don't worry if you've never heard of, of the BAT before because um, you know, unless you're an investor uh, or unless you're somebody who's lived uh, in the region, there's no reason that you would have encountered Baidu or, or Tencent or, you know, Alibaba. Um, the best way to think of these companies, um, Baidu is kind of sort of similar. It's, it's a 
kind of Google. Um, obviously, there are vast differences, but Baidu is a massive search engine. Um, it has a self-driving car division and some other things. Alibaba is a giant e-commerce um, company that also has a payment gateway and many other things. And then Tencent is kind of this like hyper-creative, interesting conglomerate that is part e-game, like gaming, part payment system, um, part social network, and, and many other things uh, within. So those are Chinese companies. And while they are you know, big, huge companies with really smart uh, CEOs, um, I, you know, by virtue of the fact that they are domiciled within China, they are under the thumb of Beijing, uh, which means that, you know, they have to follow the, they have to, in order to operate and do business, they have to have permits, they have to have, you know, paperwork in place. So they're not entirely independent. In the United States, uh, our part of the big nine are what I call the G mafia. So that's Google, uh, Apple, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, and Amazon. It does not mean for a moment that Salesforce is not doing incredible things. Salesforce is actually doing amazing things in the space of AI. But when you look at the broader ecosystem, you know, it's um, these, these, you know, our six companies, uh, it's their frameworks, it's their corpora, it's their algorithms, it's their cloud. I mean, there's, just, there's just much more uh, within that ecosystem. And here, um, these are publicly traded companies with a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Uh, you know, and on the best of days, they have a transactional relationship with, with our federal government. Most of the time, it's kind of antagonistic. So we're talking about artificial intelligence kind of being developed along two different tracks that serve different purposes. Right, right. And almost all software companies, maybe with the exception of IBM and Apple, although I'm sure all are positioning themselves uh, and, and maybe rightfully so, as software companies of the future. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. close was Tesla on being on your radar? And noticeably, there's nobody other than two continents, you know, it's, it's US and China, nobody from Europe, nobody from mm -hmm. you know, other continents. Um, uh, and and, and follow-up question to that, how, how close, you know, because obviously Tesla, we had an uh, institutional investor on our show a couple of weeks ago, and their thesis was that Tesla is three years ahead of any other autonomous com uh, vehicle competitor because of their battery production efficiency, because of their hardware and AI, spe specifically their new chipset that supposedly is 21% more efficient than NVIDIA. And lastly, uh, they have more uh, autonomous driving data than any other competitor by maybe two orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. So clearly like the leader in smart robotics and autonomous driving. Uh, and then the last thing, what, 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 are, the, what are the political ambitions of China? I, I, I believe last year or maybe a year before that, there was a, you know, a, a definitive statement that by 2030, they want to be a global leader when it comes to AI. Right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, in terms of Tesla, you're right. I mean, Tesla is leading the pack in many ways in um, computer vision and in certain types of deep learning. So, you know, the research coming out of um, Tesla, coming out of NVIDIA, certainly, um, and, you know, and lots of other very large players in the space is breathtaking. Uh, and it's significant and it's important, but it's narrow. So, you know, you're, you're, I mean, at least I don't think Tesla is going to become the thing, the Tesla OS is going to become the thing that automates the washing machine in your house. You know what I mean? Um, so, so, but that's kind of like, but this is where I think, again, it's useful for us to take a, a bit of a broader view on this. Um, because at some point, these companies do interlock. And, and again, this is where it's useful to think about 
you know, what that, what that might mean as, as things move forward. Now, in terms of countries, um, you know, China has, China published a 2030 plan um, that, that uh, described its vision for AI and its vision for, um, you know, autonomous services and, and all of the different research. And interestingly, there's a lot of what's in there that was already present in a plan written by the Obama administration in the year 2016. Um, that being said, our government changes hands every couple of years, and that's not the case in China. So, you know, one thing that China has going for it uh, is that it has an incredibly powerful, smart leader in Xi Jinping, um, you know, who has a strong viewpoint on what the future looks like uh, and, you know, has effectively become leader for life because of some uh, rule changes within the government. Um, now, I would, you know, in many ways, that's horrible, <laughs> uh, especially if you're an ethnic minority living in China. However, if you're poor somebody- Uyghurs. Poor Uyghurs. So. <laughs> yeah, poor Uyghurs. Um, I mean, really. Uh, however, you know, when you, when you have a system set up like that, you consolidate power and, you know, it can, it can have a multiplier effect. Um, now, within the context of some other initiatives, so China's got a Belt and Road Initiative, which is a an economic plan uh, along the old uh, Silk Road route. Right, right, right. That's in, it's sort of intended for uh, economic stimulus. And I mean, really, it's a sort of, at the moment, infrastructure for debt. Yeah. So they're, so they're building... By debt, so... Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're building roads and bridges and places and accumulating debt along the way, but they're also laying fiber. And they're also deploying 5G. And they're also making sure that Huawei has uh, a new avenue to, to gain new users. Um, and over and and there are 58 countries that are part of a pilot program uh, where all of this infrastructure is being built. So you kind of have to stop and ask yourself, um, you know, again, as as the future unfolds, is China building a new world order, one that achieves the kind of scale that could dwarf um, over time the the economic might and power of the Western world. And, you know, that should give us pause yeah. because, yeah, because part of what AI is being used for, you know, is automation. And there's some actually pretty cool cars, um, you know, being built in China that have automation features and interesting um, Byton. There's a BYT. Works for tanks. Works for tanks, yeah. too, you know. Works for tanks. Um, there's, there's some, like, there is some cool, and, well, but, you know, but this, this actually raises another point. Um, no doubt China for a long time just lifted IP. And, uh, you know, and, ma and made their own copies. But China, I think, has started to innovate in its own right. And we've, we've failed to recognize that. Um, you know, so there's some interesting technology coming out of China that might be interesting to other markets. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot that's changing. Now, sorry, one last thing. Um, so if AI is very much being driven by capitalism in the U.S. and by the Chinese version of communism uh, in the East, um, it does not mean that, you know, th there are plenty of things happening elsewhere in the world. So China uh, is a hub and a hotbed for deep learning um, because they're some of the best, well, the researchers who developed it are there. Um, I would say the United Arab Emirates um, in terms of thinking through technology longer term is probably farther ahead than everybody um, in terms of collaboration and inviting um, cooperation between public-private partnerships. And I mean, they've codified a plan for the year 2071, I think they've gone out that far. So, 
And they you started know. a ministry of possibilities. Totally. Oh yeah. No, there's, there's, um, they have a minister awesome. for AI and it's, and it's not window dressing. Like it's legit. Uh, so yeah. What are your thoughts about India? Uh, second GDP only to China by 2030, yep. a billion internet users by then and about a $6 trillion consumer spending power. Right. And also put a $1 trillion investments in technology plan that was proposed a few months ago. Does India have a chance to be among the top three, four when you, when you think about AI innovation? That's right. And I, again, it's used to, it's not just AI. India has a space program that's in the process of, um, you know, uh, doing some interesting things. So there's, there's a ton of innovation and a ton of really exciting work coming out of India. Um, but India is a new entrant and yeah. the market is not yet mature and the companies are not, you know, a lot of the companies are not yet mature. And to be perfectly blunt, you know, a lot of the best and brightest are, are not in India doing their work. They're, sure. they're in China and they're in the United States. Sure. Um, so, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I want to get to the point that you're talking about on the political ramifications of where AI is going and the multinational issues along the political ramifications. What we're actually seeing is a set of digital duopolies pop up in all all these different markets. Um, they're by value chains. They're not necessarily by industries. Uh, and they're also by governments that are in place. Um, taking a Galloway problem like he likes to bring up, but what does a what does a region like Europe or Latin America do uh, in yeah. response? Do they have to respond or do they allow others to actually provide that level of protection? Yeah, so a duopoly would be awesome. Uh, that would be far less complicated than what we're setting ourselves up for um, because a duopoly would imply that there are two choices. Instead, you know, we have the, right, so we have the technology, we have the infrastructure, and now, you know, and we have different value systems being baked in in the places where those things are being born and nurtured. And then we have the um, diplomatic, like the, the, the governmental response which is different now depending on where in the world you are. So, you know, Canada, which I think prides itself on being very far ahead and progressive in many ways, has its own codified set of AI ethics and standards. Um, the EU, you know, is constantly pursuing different types of regulation and different types of regulatory frameworks. Um, the current GDPR uh, governs some data and privacy, but, you know, they're, they're working on different versions of this as AI continues to mature. Um, obviously, the United States hasn't quite figured out what we're doing yet. We have no national leadership on this. Uh, we have no point of view. We have no strategy. California is in the process of launching its own data and privacy regulations. So I think rather than thinking about this as a in, in binary, you know, like U.S. versus China, instead what we have are increasingly a whole bunch of people with their own ideas who are coalescing into newfangled tribes and at the end, there's still no enforcement mechanism and there's no economic incentive. And so, you're, you know, there's a group of evangelical Christians who a couple of weeks ago released their own AI principles. There's a new center at Stanford. There's a new center at, uh, at Georgetown. So if you're a company like Amazon or Google, um, what, you're, you're, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to hear everybody's ideas, right? And then you're going to say cool, thanks. And you're going to just keep going back to, to doing whatever it is that you were doing before. Um, so, yeah. So, that, so that's what I'm saying. Like two options would be way better than like 150. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, my last question, Amy, what, what would you like uh, your readers to walk away from reading your, your new book, which I believe is available May 10th, if I'm not mistaken? Actually, no, it's been out. Uh, it's, it's out now. It's out now. Uh, it's out now. It's, it's out, uh, 
in North America, Australia, and England, and it starts launch. There's like 11 different international editions in different languages coming out. It's also available in England, or I'm sorry, in India. Um, you know, I wrote this book for a few different groups of people. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote it for anybody who works anywhere in policy uh, who, who needs to understand the technology and the history and, and sort of how we got to now. I also wrote this for the people working within the AI community to give them a better sense of, you know, how some of this might shake out and how, you know, the downstream implications of their work, but also for investors who, again, like I, I, I get the fact that they want to earn a return on those investments, but we have to somehow inculcate a new piece of the investment system that includes risk management and risk modeling because you know the street punishes a company now for doing extended R&D or waiting to get a product into market. Um, and that short-term benefit is gonna cause us some long-term problems. So I wrote it for investors <clears throat> as a wake-up call uh, and hopefully a, a reason, um, you know, g giving them a reason to slow down a little bit. And then for everyday people who just have no idea what AI is and they keep hearing about it mm -hmm. and uh, wanna be able to you know, have that frame of reference. And, and the best possible outcome from this book, like the easiest best possible outcome is if everybody reads the book and just understands what AI actually is and what it isn't and, and is not anthropomorphizing it, you know, and is not just set their eyes on, on the horizon and sometime in the distant future for a walking, talking robot, but instead they sort of like grok that it's now, that, will, that would be great. That would help us all out. Wow, this is amazing. We're here with Amy Webb, author, quantitative futurist, futurist and professor at NYU, founder of the Future Today Institute. You can also check out her recent book. It is amazing. It's one of the top books people should be looking at. And uh, more importantly, follow her at Amy W-E-B-B. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, guys. It was great talking to you. Super fun. Thanks, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, one of the one of the one of the top minds, and definitely, you know, uh, if you're researching AI, you know, you have Paul Doherty's machine, Human Plus Machine, Dr. Kakuli's AI Superpowers, and and Amy's Big Nine. So terrific, terrific uh, recommendations for books. And speaking of, uh, you know, uh, emerging technologies and economies, China, U.S. and and impact in terms of disrupting markets. Our next guest is Jay Jacobs, Senior Vice President, Head of Research and Strategy at Global X Funds. Jay leads the firm's research team, which originates um, the firm's unique insights of the markets and ETFs. Jay also guides the planning and development of the firm's strategic direction. He's frequently cited expert on financial uh, media, including CNBC, Bloomberg, and Wall Street Journal. Prior to joining Global X, Jay was business analyst at New York Stock Exchange in the ETF and indexing group where he helped launch hundreds of ETFs on the New York Stock Exchange. You can follow Jay on Twitter at J-A-Y-J-A-C-O-B-S-C-F-A. Welcome back, Jay, to the Shrub TV. Happy Friday, guys. <laughs> Happy Friday to Happy you. Friday. <laughs> so go ahead, uh, Ray. So, hey, I want to start with a big question, right? We, cloud computing's hot. Uh, we just saw Intel's earnings come through this morning, right? And yesterday, uh, saw a massive drop. Uh, you know, Intel CEOs talking about these lumpy earnings uh, coming through with cloud computing. Uh, but do you still believe cloud computing is the next major catalyst for business transformation? 
Yeah, it's funny because I think if you, um, you know, pulled your audience, which is very future focused, they might think cloud is a technology, uh, you know, started off 10, 15 years ago at this point. Um, but in the business world and where people are actually generating profits, which tends to lag, you know, actual technological development, cloud is the hot thing, whether you are IBM, whether you're Microsoft, whether you're Amazon, uh, you know, extending to the, you know, the software providers like a Salesforce or a Netflix delivering a, you know, a, a product via cloud. Um, this is the way the world is being built going forward. So there's very much a lot of attractiveness in the investment markets around cloud. And it's still very early on uh, in kind of the adoption phase for cloud broadly among enterprise uses. You know, it's crazy, right? We're 19 years into the cloud. Think about this. 19 yeah. years. Salesforce is 20 years old. This is the <laughs> slowest adoption rate of, a, of an exponential technology I've ever seen. I mean, I mean I've been pre we've been preaching cloud for 19 years. Anyways, go ahead, Mala. Like I said, we're, Salesforce is 20 years old. So we've been preaching it since March 8, 1999. Um, Jay, you recently wrote why your portfolio should go thematic. What does that mean when you talk about thematic? ETFs. Sure. So, you know, if you look at the investment world, there's a bit of a bias to look backwards because it's very data heavy. And what data do you have? We have data looking backwards. You have data about stock prices in the past, about correlations and volatility in the past, about how companies have generated earnings. And so when you look at kind of modern portfolio theory and how people build portfolios on you know, from you're building your own portfolio on, on Schwab or TD Ameritrade to, you know, using a financial advisor, uh, it's very backwards biased. And that's, that's fine. It's better than just guessing and basing it off of nothing. Um, however, uh, you know, we think there's a spot in people's portfolios for looking forward and how the world is going to look different uh, from today. That, you know, history is not exactly going to repeat itself. Uh, that there's going to be new technologies, new demographic changes, new consumer habits uh, that drive a lot of growth of, uh, around the world. So, you know, we really define thematic investing as the process of identifying those disruptive macro level trends and then looking to see which are the companies that stand to benefit from the materialization of those trends. So if we go out and we say uh, we believe robotics and artificial intelligence is a disruptive technology, it's going to disrupt how things are manufactured, it's going to disrupt transportation with autonomous vehicles. It's going to disrupt agriculture with drones and autonomous uh, tractors. It's going to transform the military and defense. So, you, you know, we can make the case for disruption, and I'm not going to be the first person to do that on the show. Um, but then the second question is, you know, is this actually an investable theme? Is this something that I can put in my portfolio looking at publicly traded stocks? And so that's where a lot of our work comes in identifying that theme and then building a portfolio of stocks around the world that have exposure to these thematic ideas. So, so when, you, when, you're, when you're developing this thematic thesis, how much of it is technology weighted versus consumer behavior, demographics, um, how we talked about government's influence on markets, like, it, it must be a multi-dimensional weighted approach in terms of how you how you how you build your thematic thesis. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely correct. So we now have 14 different themes that we've launched in an ETF. So uh, we actually you know, did this project where we looked at every theme that everyone was talking about um, on Wall Street and consulting firms and in more kind of futurist forums, and we counted 65 themes. 
groups. Um, and then we kind of put it to 65. Um, kind of, they kind of group certain things together. Some things are mega themes versus some things. You need machine learning. I don't know how to <laughs> <laughs> track. So, uh, we had 65, and then we, but we really looked at those 65, and we said, you know, which of these are legitimate? Which ones do we have, you know, real conviction behind? Because robotics, we have a ton of conviction behind. Uh, there's some other ones that are interesting, but we're just not ready to say we believe this is disruptive yet, such as space exploration. I think it's fascinating. Clearly, a lot of billionaires have lined up behind this as the next frontier. But we're not ready to say this is the next disruptive technology. It's a technology that's been around for now 70 years and progressing pretty slowly over that time frame. Um, so we, we look at those 65. Is it disruptive? We look to see is it investable? And then is the long-term time frame? And that's how we go from 65 to 14. And then, Bala, you know, to your question, nine of those are technology-related. You just see so much disruption happening from the advancement of technology that that really is a big driver of these themes. But four are consumer-led and one is government-led, which is our infrastructure fund. Wow. No. Hey, 3.2% GDP. Was that in your forecast? Just check it. <laughs> no, I'm really asking that only because of the tailwinds of the trade war, right? We, we think about what's going on. Imagine if the trade war wasn't in place, where would we be at? Would we be at four? Would we be at four and a half? Uh, or, I mean, what, what's going on? Because there seems to be this weird dichotomy of trade war is bad, Phillips curve's in trouble, uh, here's where we're at. I mean, what's going on there when we think about this? And then, of course, you know, tying back to what's happening on tech in China. So. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the 3.2% did surprise me, and I tweeted about it today. I mean, we forget, but that government shutdown that took, lasted forever and dominated the news, that was only three months ago, and it feels like ages ago. But um, that took over the you know the entire January, essentially, and, and part of December. And so the, the, there were a lot of concerns that the number of government employees that weren't getting paid, the number of contractors that weren't getting paid, could really make a dent in the Q1 GDP numbers. And then of course, you know, China trade war, how does that change how companies are investing? So I think the expectation was much more kind of in the mid 2% level for GDP. Yep, yep. 3.2%, you know, you're right, it could have been 4% had, a, you know, had we not had these headwinds. So, you know, where is that coming from? Uh, we think a lot of that is being driven by the strength of the consumer in the United States. If you look at a lot of uh, earnings from banks, they've been saying consumers are just buying everything. There's good credit lending, good auto lending. Retail sales were very good last month. So this is an economy that's driven 70% by consumption. If consumers are feeling good and spending money on things, that's a good sign for the economy. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had um, technologists, futurists, investment uh, experts, um, on the show talking about a variety of emerging technologies. We've spent some time talking about uh, technologies like lithium battery and, and, and the EV space, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars already spent. The countries like Norway where the tipping point where more than 50% of new cars sold are electric vehicles. Um, we've talked about every, connected everything, you know, <laughs> so, you know, the internet of things and wearables and, 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 and the fact that anything that can connect will connect. So, lots of bullish uh, expectations in terms of uh, IoT technologies and sensors. Um, and recently I talked to a lot of telco executives and they're certainly bullish about 5G. What are your thoughts about, is, is this truly a game changer, edge computing and really being able to deliver um, insights at, 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 again, two orders of magnitude speed uh, to, to you wherever you are? Yeah, I mean, there's no question. This is, uh, it's not just a disruptive technology, it's a foundational technology because 
5G is a data superhighway. You know, if we look at 4G and, and call it, you know, a four lane, or no, it's called a two lane highway going 40 miles an hour. Uh, 5G is roughly a 2000 lane highway going 4,000 miles an hour. So way more capacity, way more speed, and it's gonna enable all kinds of new technologies to be built on top of it. You know, augmented and virtual reality, um, uh, virtual or, um, or remote surgeries, um, autonomous vehicles almost need 5G, uh, you know, as a complete, as a component to communicate with other cars in real time. So we're, you know, it, it's going to be built and then new technologies will be built on top of it. You know, we've actually started a little bit of a research project going backwards and looking at, you know, who won from 4G. Because, you know, 4G really started to roll out in kind of 2011 and 2012. You know, which are the different components of you know companies in the stock market that, that benefited from that? So, the telco companies actually benefited the least out of the four groups we looked at. We looked at telcos, telcos. We looked at the network hardware providers. So, you know, really the people that build the chips and the systems that you know, run you know, 4G transmitters. Uh, we looked at the smartphone companies because smartphones, you know, basically were very incapable before 4G came out. And then last, we looked at social media companies. And if you think about the direction social media has gone, which is photo and video, mm -hmm. really relied on 4G as well, the winner was social media. So it wasn't necessarily the people building 5G. The most, it was the, it was the technologies built on top of that. And that's what we really see with 5G as well. The builders can, you know, they could do fine, but it, what are the new businesses that are going to be started on top of 5G that were never capable of? That's what we're saying. So, so, so consumer-facing application leveraging the the, the 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 highway. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you look at you know, we can look at other technologies as well. I mean, look at you know the 1950s when the national highway system was built. You know, there's the people that built the highway. You know, there's the government funding the highway, but it created a whole new culture around the United States. It was really the kind of rebirth of the automobile from the masses. Uh, it was the, you know it connected many cities that otherwise no one would ever have stopped in. Uh, you know, McDonald's is basically the, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the national highway system ever. So you know, five G is the highway. Who's the next McDonald's? Is kind of the question. Right. right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, Eisenhower, Eisenhower interstate freeway system to uh, you know making up who who gets to actually take that. Uh, take the lanes, the multiplexing, and the stuff that's happening there. But, but what happens in this when we think about the China versus U.S. tech area, right? We were talking about that earlier in the other segment. Uh, the, the question is, are we behind? Are we ahead? Does it matter? Uh, what does it change in terms of the, uh, you know, the economics? Yeah, and I thought Amy had some spectacular answers on that space. It, you know, it's, it very much depends on what technologies you're looking at. So, you know, for, the, for a long time, China has been good at building hardware and replicating certain technologies, but not necessarily as much on the innovation side. And I think that's where a big gap has been uh, closed, where you know you look at the bats that Amy was talking about, they're really innovative companies and they're really uh, promoting technologies in China in a way that even we're struggling to in the United States. If you look at China, for example, FinTech and mobile payments is way further ahead than it is. Absolutely. So, you know, some technologies, they're completely <laughs> blowing us out of the water. And so, you know, it's a question of, of talent. You know, of course, um, you know, the United States has had an incredible university system and attracts um, immigration of talented individuals, which has been a big positive, but China's catching up. And then, you know, also talent is oftentimes a function of money and China is wealthier than it's ever been and they're willing to spend on this talent. So, you know, you ask questions like, 
uh, you know, China doesn't have much of a automobile industry compared to the United States and compared to China and compared to Germany. So how could China possibly catch up? Well, they hire German engineers and they hire programmers from Google to help build the next electric vehicle in China. That's just how the world works these days. So, you know, we're acting like this is a different country on the other side of the planet trying to develop this stuff. There, the technology is happening in our own backyard. It's just where's the money going and what's the brand name behind it? No, absolutely. I often remind people that, look, Alibaba sold $31.5 billion in one day. There's only like 54 companies that have that for annual revenue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, singles Day, man. Day. Singles Day is amazing. Yeah, Singles Day, exactly. So, so you know, in terms of payments and infrastructure and reach and, and frankly, you know, one and a half billion uh, population. And as Dr. Kaifu Luis wrote in his book, the fact that, you know, you, can, you have the data and you have the liberty, you know, government-led opportunity to really innovate at whatever speed without constraints. Uh, now, we can argue with the social score of every citizen and, you know, where do you drop the line? <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, the opportunity to innovate is, is spectacular. Um, I am not personally sold on VR, <laughs> even though I have a house full of Oculus and kids running around and my son watches NBA basketball like he's sitting courtside, which is great, saves us few thousand dollars a game to go to a Celtics game to sit at courtside, which I can't afford. <laughs> but on AR, I, I'm, I'm bullish. What are your thoughts in terms of AR and VR? And will technologies like, you know, sensors, 5G, quantum computing, are we going to get to a point where we don't have to put a bulky headset and feel, you know, nauseated after a few minutes and really be able to really <laughs> take advantage of, of VR? Nauseated. <laughs> It's really early on. And so, you know, you look at the adoption curve of these technologies and the further along the adoption curve you are, the more confident you can be that this technology really has staying power. And if you look at, you know, um, augmented and virtual reality, it's still very early on. Uh, with that being said, it comes down to use cases. And if people find a easy way to use this technology that provides a benefit to them. And so I don't think we can ever underestimate how powerful Pokemon Go was in this whole process. <laughs> but it got augmented reality on the map because people realized I can do this on my phone and I don't need to buy anything new and this is fun and it's a new way to interact with the game. So you know, it starts with something maybe a little bit silly like that, but you know, what if, you know, the next, you know, the next iteration of that is uh, a cooking app that shows you, you know, exactly what, you know, how you want to prepare a recipe or directions on Google maps that shows you exactly where you should be going. You know, I think we have to be very incremental about this technology because it is such a different way of interacting with our phones or with screens. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to count it out yet. It just it is taking a bit longer than maybe uh, people expected. And we had the CEO of AT&T in a Bloomberg interview this week talk about the fact that he believes at some point screens go away. Um, and and by the multiplicative power of AI, AR, um, and, 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 and the wearables will be, uh, and use in, in autonomous vehicles where you can safely, you know, search and, 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 and use the web without, you know, without having to drive. All of those combinations will get to a point where we may have less dependencies on screens versus what today is our remote control for life, this, you know, this thing. And Ray probably has three of them at his <laughs> fingertips. No, 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 we're good there. <laughs> so, but hey, I, I do have a question for you really about long-term investment, right? We've seen um, all across the world that 
You know, every major company that wants to innovate have had their dollars stripped away from them into stock buybacks, dividends, and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, is there enough money for innovation to sustain the type of growth that we're looking for or uh, going forward in terms of the investments in, that, in this type of innovation and technology? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, there's a ton of money out there. If there's a good idea and some way to execute, there's money that will find its way. I, I don't think that's an issue. But, you know, there is an issue about the expectations of the market and the time frame that they want to see a return on that investment. And so I think this is where you've seen, you know, a bigger divergence between uh, venture capital, private capital um, versus the public markets where, you know, venture capital can actually be patient. They want to see what happens in a few years, not what happens next quarter. Um, we've certainly tried to train investors and say, if you're investing in these disruptive themes like robotics and artificial intelligence, like lithium and battery technology, this is a part of your portfolio that you want to set aside and not look at for five or 10 years, because there will be a lot of volatility. These companies will vastly exceed expectations and vastly fall uh, short of them on any given quarter. Uh, it's really about the slow um, process of developing that technology and turning it into a profitable venture that, um, that, that that's going to see the rewards of that. So, I'm not worried about the quantity of money. I worry about people's psychology behind investing in these um, companies and having the patience necessary to reap the rewards. Well, we have patient capital. Jay Jacobs, Senior Vice President, Head of Research and Strategy, Global X Funds. You can follow him on Twitter at CFA. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank That's you, guys. You're terrific. Thank you. Always wow. uh, incredible insights when we have uh, Jay on the show. and. Uh, and uh, we now bring our cleanup hitter. Our Ooh, look at that background. <laughs> <laughs> we have our final guest, Larry Dignan, editor-in-chief of ZDNet and Smart Planet, as well as editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Larry, uh, most recently executive editor of news blogs at ZDNet. He's been covering technology and financial industry since 1995, published articles in many media outlets. You can follow Larry on, he's a regular guest, so I think they, people, our, our audience know you better than Ray and I. You can follow Larry on Twitter, L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Welcome, Larry, to Disrupt TV. Ray, I will see your bridge and raise it a beach scene. <laughs> Damn. All right. I'll come back with another beach scene. No, just kidding. Oh, hey. I can Ireland, UK, bam. <laughs> I got it all going on. Oh man, happy Friday. What's going on in the world today? NVIDIA versus Tesla. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. Our previous guests were sort of touching on some themes and, and the one, you know, the, I know, I sort of know why you were asking that thing about, you know, buybacks and all that and innovation because SAP, they're all about shareholder value now. Um, and it's just kind of fascinating because I was kind of wondering the same thing. I'm like, does you know, does that take the place of R&D and innovation and all that good stuff? Is, yep. is HANA really going to be all the insight you need? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's interesting to watch. Um, and, I, and I've kind of seen the companies do the buyback thing and, you know, hit, hit their really great shareholder value numbers and then, and then scrimp an R&D that kills them in the future, right? I mean, Mark uh, Hurd. EPS will kill you. EPS yeah. will kill you. Remember, remember HP and Mark Hurd? I mean, guy hit every number every quarter, and then he leaves, and then you're like, oh, they kind of scrimped on R&D for a while, right? So it's a balance. So that, so that was like one earnings theme from this week. Um, the other one is just the cloud prints money. I mean, my God, like Microsoft's earnings were ridiculous. 
um, the commercial cloud stuff, which is the roll up of everything they got going on. Um, and then the more interesting one was AWS. Uh, they just crushed it on earnings. Um, and what's interesting there is that between that and the ad business, I think Amazon has enough um, high margin businesses to where they can float some other things for commerce now, right? I mean, they're moving prime to one day. They're spending $800 million um, in the second quarter just on getting that going. And, you know, usually I think Wall Street would be like, what the hell are you guys doing? And now they're kind of like, well, we got cash raining out of the sky from the cloud, so why not? Um, just different... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like if, Am if Amazon said they were going to do one day shipping on prime as like a standard yeah. two, three years ago, people would be screaming, right? Be yet another investment cycle to bitch about. Um, now people are kind of like, okay, I get it. Like it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's just fascinating to see how it plays out. Any surprises with the earnings, whether, you know, Twitter, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, any, any of the, any uh, I think the thing, the th two things that struck for me, I mean, aside from the cloud printing cash, um, the Intel 5G stuff, uh, you know, they kind of warned on their earnings. You know, when I'm looking at like, you know, traditional chips, you have AMD, which is kind of resurgent. You got the NVIDIA thing on the AI GPU front. And I kind of wonder, you know, how long it is before Intel, you know, where the new, the new CEO, Bob Swan, he doesn't really have much of a honeymoon. Um, so that's going to be interesting to play out. I think the other thing that stood out for me is how much Facebook is doing well financially, despite all the bad headlines. I mean, it's kind of stunning. Um, it, it is stunning. It yeah, is it's amazing. like, wow. I mean, they're Teflon. Like absolutely, almost 2.4 billion monthly active users. It's a third of humanity is, is using their platform, and, and it's growing. You know, it's it's. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to see the breakout though between Instagram and Messenger, and right. you know, I I want to see that breakdown. Like like how many of us deactivated our Facebook accounts but kept Messenger? So if I use Messenger once, twice a month, right? Am I an active user? Probably, but I'm using it. 85% less than I used to. Um, Instagram, you know, you go down the list, like it's a blended number now. Um, so it may not be all the peers. The other thing that stuck out for me on the social front is that Snapchat's almost looking like a real company, which is a little, <laughs> which is a little crazy. And then yesterday they hired, a, they hired a new CMO who I forget where he came from. I think he worked for Gatorade and uh, McDonald's. So, that's like real brand. I mean, that's a real, real brands. This guy ran. Um, Kenny Mitchell. Kenny Mitchell's there. So yeah. So so that's that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, and they talked about getting their cloud costs together. They finally figured out the Android app. Um, and, and you kind of look at Snap, and you're like, all right, may, maybe you guys have a shot. And then Twitter, you know, they they kind of look like a real company too sometimes. Um, <laughs> Hey, they're in the White House with the president, so. Yeah, and, and you know with Twitter, the thing I watch all the time, I just watch that data licensing number. Because at the end of the day, I think that's going to be most of the business. Like, I, I think just Twitter as a place to like gauge sentiment, do sentiment analysis, figure out how your brand's doing. I mean, I think the data licensing business is probably the big win for them over time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, the earnings haven't been bad in, in you know, the tech landscape. And it's just, you know, it is interesting, though, because I just sort of, 
you know, my ears perk up sometimes where, you know, you see Twitter or Snap looking like a real business, you know, on some level. Um, and then the SAP thing, the SAP thing makes me a little nervous. I mean, I know they got an activist investor and I get all, I get all that. And I'm just kind of like, I just know companies can look like shareholder value rock stars. And that doesn't necessarily translate to the customers. Right. Yeah. So no good has ever come from Elliott management. That's all we can say. They're up there with Pershing yeah. square. I mean, yeah, those, exactly. guys are, those guys just destroy companies, load the debt up and uh, leave and the balance sheet looks better for them. Yeah. Larry, but, you, uh, if you're a company targeted by them, you kind of got to play ball. Yeah. We had, a, we, had a, worse. we had an investor here uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, they had interviewed Elon Musk and Musk said that their custom chipset is 2100% more efficient, powerful than their legacy chipset. And uh, certainly NVIDIA responded right away to that, those claims. Any thoughts about this uh, battle going back and forth in terms of who has the smartest AI chipset? I, I really think it's apples and oranges. Um, it is almost, I mean, if you're Tesla, I totally get where they're coming from, right? And, and this, is, this is sort of, I think every business has to think this through. Like, do you go with the general purpose thing? Right. Or do you build your own proprietary thing that just does one or two things really damn well. And if you're Tesla, I mean, it makes sense to do that. It's no different than Apple developing a chip for their platform, right? And they do that too. So, I mean, I think it's easier, it's easier and easier with contract manufacturing to sort of spin up these things and, and hire some people to work on designs and things like that. Um, that said, I do think the comparison's a little odd because one, Tesla's chip is really single purpose. Yeah. And NVIDIA, it's, it's more like an Intel of GPUs, yeah. right? It's built for multiple workloads. Mm -hmm. so I, I don't know if you can necessarily compare those things, yeah. right? Because we can't, we can't take Tesla's chip and throw it in yeah. a few servers doing medical imaging. Right. I don't know how that works, right? Yeah. So, so I, don't, I don't necessarily see it as, I mean, I think it's good for Tesla that they cut out NVIDIA maybe in terms of expenses for now. But, but that fancy schmancy silicon guy they had on there, how much did he cost? Right? So, <laughs> well, hey, you know, if your stock is, if you know your earnings are going to plummet, I mean, you've got to distract. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that, that's my whole thing with Tesla. I mean, I still look at a balance sheet and I, I go, you guys just need to raise more capital again. And, you know, I mean, Musk is a visionary, but he's, he's also a circus guy. And I'm just not, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure where they land, to be honest, and, and the logistics problems they're having. And then they were like going to cut retail stores back and then they sort of didn't like, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's interesting, but I think the whole NVIDIA Tesla things like pretty, pretty overblown in my view. Cause I don't, I mean, I've seen enough bench benchmark wars in, in the chip space where there's no way for me to independently verify any of it. Right. So I just kind of look at it and go, you're all lying. Um, hey, let's talk, let's, let's talk about something more interesting. 2019 IT spending. Where are the chips laying on this one? I just think, honestly, I'm not sure I buy those numbers. I mean, it's sort of landing <laughs> on digital transformation. Like, you know, can any CIO say they're not spending on digital transformation? No. no. Right? So, I mean, we're all, we're all trying to, you know, outrun whatever. Um, but, you know, with the GDP, and uh, it, it's kind of all over the place. So, I, I mean, I kind of look at those numbers, but until you get to 
prognostications in the third quarter where we sort of have most of the year done. I, I just think we don't know what the second half unfolds, right? I mean, we, we've got trade wars. We've got we, – there's so many moving parts here um, that I don't, I, I don't necessarily buy it. I mean, I, I mean, I do think tech spending is going to be fine. Yeah. And I do think certain sectors, the cloud, the cloud folks are going to do well. Um, hybrid cloud seems to be doing well. Security is always going to do well. So I think there's a lot of that, but uh, you know, I, I think I think tech spending is going to be kind of fluid going forward because I, I do think we're sort of at this point where if you went heavy into cloud, you're tr you're trying desperately to optimize your spend, and I don't think a lot of folks are good at it at all. Those, so, those AWS bills are piling up. So yeah, well, it's it's AWS. I mean, you know, what happens when that three-year Salesforce deal gets off? Well. <laughs> You know, they're, they're going to throw a little Einstein at your head. You know what I mean? Like, what all those contracts turn up, whether it's work day, sales, you name them, right? You're kind of like, you've got your bills going up, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think there's some of that. Um, so it, it's a little, un, I mean, I do know, like, it's not going to land, like, in servers and storage. It's, you know, you kind of know where it's not going to land. But as far as where, you know, the spending's actually going to go, it, it's kind of anyone's guess, I mean, I do think there are things like Wi-Fi 6, which might be interesting, and, and that'll probably garner more money in the second half of the year. I don't even know if that's baked into any of these calculations, right? No, but those aren't. Like, I think Wi-Fi 6 is going to be more important than 5G, mm -hmm. at least over the next two years, right? I mean, it, it just makes sense. So, so I think those sort of things, I think there's just so many wild cards. It's really tough to look like whether it's Gardner's numbers, Forrester, whoever, num IDC, whatever the numbers are, you know, three and a half percent. I mean, you, you got to look under the hood because all that stuff changes. And any, any correlation or maybe leading indicators when you look at the Lyft IPO, the Zoom, the Slack, the Uber, there's going to be some big, potentially successful IPOs or, or definite successful IPOs in 2019. Does that somehow correlate to tech spend in terms of optimism and, and, and bullish behavior? It, it might. I mean, I, the worst thing you can ever say to me, like when you're pitching me a story is go, Oh, this company's a unicorn. <laughs> that just means you convinced yeah. what a few dozen people that you're worth a billion or more. Like you got to hit the market. Right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't necessarily, like, I mean, you see Uber now, right. They keep slicing that thing because yeah. I don't, I don't know what Uber will turn out to be. I mean, I thought their S one versus Lyft look, was much more of an interesting read. Um, and I think technology wise, you know, Uber seems more well equipped to go from basic, basically being a glorified taxi service to like cooking up something like AWS, mm. right? So there's potential for that, but what am I willing to pay for that now? I don't know. Um, I do know companies like Zoom, that's a legit company. Right? We, knew There's a we knew that two years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's the only thing that sort of works in this space. Um, and then you look at Slack, and, and I read Slack's S1, and given all the talk about Slack, I could have swore it was bigger. I had the, I had the same reaction to Workday, like when work, Workday filed to go public. You look at the revenue, and I'm like, wow, for all the digital ink spent on Workday, this is it? And yeah, I yeah. felt that way about Slack, right? Like Slack's position is this revolutionary thing. And I forget what the sales were, but it wasn't what I was expecting. It, it seemed much smaller than it should have been based on, you know, the amount of time we talk about it. 
So I, I think there's a lot of that reevaluation. I do know, like, as far as IPOs go, I, I think, you know, as far as the returns and investors and what they look at, I think the enterprise business tech folks, they just have a better edge in terms of looking like real businesses, right? And we've, we saw that with Octo. We've seen that with a lot of companies. Um, you know, I, I look at Lyft and Uber and I'm just kind of like, eh, it, it's okay. I mean, but I don't know, you know, let, let's see what happens when they actually have to start paying their drivers more or, or what happens when their drivers have to be employees. Like well, maybe there won't be any drivers. <laughs> what was that? Right. But that, but that's, that, that's needs a little bit of runway. Right. And is Tesla doing that or is Uber? Not me. You know, your thoughts on, uh, Samsung based on the last couple of weeks. How, how's your fold doing? <laughs> I didn't get one. Um, you know, I have seen mixed reviews, uh, but at the end it's, uh, it's a science project. Um, and Huawei is foldable, you know, it might be a little better, but it's also 2,500 bucks. And I think the price, I, I, I got a hand it to Samsung for like pushing it though. Like I, you know, I got, you got to hand them for that. Right. Cause they're trying to invent a form factor again. Sure. And you know, it does seem like it's a bit rushed and we'll see how it plays out. I, I mean, I think the film thing was a little weird because you do naturally want to pull that off. Yeah. But I, I don't know where it lands. Like, I, we kind of had this debate on ZDNet where some people are like, just shelve this thing, start over. Um, <laughs> I was kind of like... Co's, I, well, this, this is DJ Co's last stand, right? This was the phone that was supposed to save DJ Co. And right. as, as it, it, it's basically... I mean, turned into egg on face big time because they, they did rush this thing out. So, right. Do you think, do you think it's big time? Do you think it's. Do you think this, it's this, was, uh, this was a big deal for uh, them. Yeah. This is DJ Co's uh, big, big push, right? There's a little right. internal political battle inside mm -hmm. Samsung between the innovation team and, and, and the consumer electronics team right now. And, but, and this kind of like it, stepped back. Was it, a, was it a money ball that said first through the wall is always the bloodiest? I mean, if you want to have to accept the posture, you can't. I think that's what you're looking at in the foldable space, yeah. right? Like if it's not Samsung, it's Huawei, which we won't get that in the US anyway. Yeah. But you, you go through, you know, some of these devices. I mean, maybe Motorola's Razor thing works. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I do know. The form factor is quirky enough to pique my interest, but the price is high enough to like turn me off completely. Like I need something that's fully baked if you're going to spend that much. Yes. And you know, that said, I mean, it's almost, it's almost become bizarre with Samsung because due to the note seven debacle, this is bad, but it's not that bad. Right. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? so, right. so there was actually, not for Samsung, there was actually some advantage by getting kicked in the head so bad over the Note 7. I still that, have mine. <laughs> yeah, like the foldable thing, it, you know, the fold is a crisis, but relatively speaking, it's not that bad, right? Because you've been through worse. So I'm, I'm sort of like, I, I don't know. I, I, honestly, the fold thing, I just need to see more. I need to understand what happened. They need to do their investigations. They need, you know, they need to detail like what happened or what they're doing differently and kind of go from there. So for me, it's really jury still out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm kind of looking at the note 10 and thinking, yeah, it'll be my phone, but I'm still hung up on that 5g thing versus not. Right. So 
I don't know if I want to pay a premium for a 5G trip, 5G trip chip. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, when it comes to smartphones and mobile devices right now, I, I'm thinking punting is the best move. <laughs> All right, real quick. We only got about 30 seconds. The U S government has how many data centers? Way too many. I can't remember. <laughs> it was like 13,000 or some ridiculous. Yeah. Number. And they've been, they've been trying to consolidate these things forever and it's just not getting it. 166. Yeah. That's nuts. Um, but then again, you see the politics of cloud contracts too, right? So that explains some of it. Oh yeah. Uh, the other big losers. Is those data centers employ people. And the government can't really well, get rid of people easily. Of yeah. Where else can you get better air conditioning in DC in the summer? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Not a bad thing. <laughs> All right, we are live here with ZDNet man, Larry Dingen. More importantly, he's the guy that looks at everything first, looks at things ah, that you would never look at ah, in a different point of view, and more importantly, one of our favorite guests. Thank you so much for being on the show. You can follow him at L Dingen, L-D-I-G-N-A-N. And thank you. Happy Friday. Thank Have you, a good weekend, guys. Thank you. He's, uh, Ray, Larry's one of my favorites. This is the real deal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Real -ish. <laughs> when I retire, we know who's going to be maybe potential co-host of Disrupt TV. So. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's awesome. Well, hey, you know, this is amazing. Uh, we've got another sh shows coming up. Uh, next week, we might have a little change in schedule, just so people know that. Uh, so we're not going to announce those uh, guests on that show yet. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for following us. Awesome Friday. And uh, yeah, what's new on your agenda, Vala? I'm heading to Canada next week to speak at a customer leadership event. I'll be in New York City end of the May for NASCOM conference in New York. And uh, San Diego in the middle of May. May is uh, on the road. So I'm... I'm trying to compete with you, Ray, which is not a race I want to be in ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to be at the SAS Global Forum. I'm skipping CRM Evolution this year, uh, and uh, we'll be at an event uh, in Raleigh, Durham for Emphasis. So oh, that's Very kind of my good. schedule. All right. Well, hey, take care, everybody. Happy Friday. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.